So last night, we began the discussion of the Four Noble Truths with an exploration of both the meaning of and experience of dukkha. You know, that Pali term <coughs> which refers to the basic unsatisfying nature of changing experience. Unsatisfying or unfulfilling precisely because it's changing. And so things are unreliable in that way. <coughs> so to not continue the exploration of the Four Noble Truths with a discussion of the cause of dukkha, which is the second noble truth. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving <coughs> which leads to renewed existence accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there. That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. So the Buddha is laying out craving as being the cause of suffering and laying out the domains of craving. And it's interesting to really contemplate that of all the possible unwholesome tendencies of mind that the Buddha could have uh, pointed to as being the source of suffering, it's like he pinpointed craving, uh, which is just this deeply conditioned pattern in the mind that keeps the whole wheel of samsara going. So it's not some small thing. Craving is powerfully conditioned in our minds and plays out in so many different ways in our lives. He said, Bhikkhus, I do not envision even one other fetter, fettered by which beings go wandering and transmigrating for a long, long time, <clears throat> like the fetter of craving. So it's really worth us examining and looking and understanding what it is and how it's working in our minds. So as, as most of you know, craving is the English translation <coughs> of the Pali word tanha, which means thirst, or sometimes the fever of unsatisfied longing. And I actually like the translation of thirst because, you know, when, when we're thirsty, it's a very intense, compelling feeling, right? And thirst, I think, really conveys the power of craving, that thirsting in the mind. It's a very compelling force. It's, it's kind of like a primal energy, you know, that is really within our depths. Now in English, we often use the terms craving and desire synonymously. We have to be a little careful here because <clears throat> desire in English can have a wide range of meanings. So sometimes desire does mean craving. You know, it's that desire rooted in greed. But we also use the word desire in other ways, the desire to accomplish something. It's, it's kind of the meaning of a motivation to do something. I have a desire to do, I have a desire to come to this retreat. You know, I have a desire to create 
wholesome states of mind. So this is not the desire of tanha. This is not the desire of greed. And there's another Pali word for this kind of desire to do. It's chanda. And chanda is ethically neutral. Chanda, this desire to do, can be associated with wholesome or unwholesome uh, qualities. So it's just to know when we talk about tanha or craving, and tonight I'm going to be using them synonymously, craving and desire, but keep in mind as you understand what it's about, that we also use the term desire for other states. So don't get confused about what we're talking about. The Buddha spoke of the three domains, <coughs> he mentioned three domains to experience and explore craving. The craving for sense pleasures, the craving for existence, and the craving for non-existence, or non-becoming. And the first, of course, is the most obvious. You know, this craving or desire for sense pleasures. You know, this wanting of pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations in the body, and pleasant mind states. And we consider the mind as the sixth sense. And what's interesting, you know, when we look at our lives, we really just see this as the ordinary engagement of our lives. We don't really look at it as being anything either special or problematic. Just enjoying and wanting what is pleasurable and trying to avoid as best we can what is unpleasant. So this, I think for most of us, just yeah, this is, this is just ordinary life. This is what we do. But the Buddha, as, as a bodhisattva, he wasn't just an ordinary being going about his life. He asked of himself a very probing question by way of trying to understand. The first question he asked was, what is the gratification in the world? What is, what is the source? What is the gratification? And as a young prince, according to the stories, you know, he enjoyed all kinds of sense pleasures, all kinds of sensual delights. So these were not foreign to him. He was well versed, well experienced in the realm of sense pleasure. Then as it's recounted in the sutta, he reflected, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. The pleasure and the joy that we experience. If there were no pleasure and joy in the world, beings would not become enamored by it. So I think this is a very clear recognition. There is gratification in the world. There is pleasure in the world. There is joy in the world, and it's precisely because of this that we do become enamored of it. So this is just a kind of a realistic assessment of the nature of our experience. It's precisely because there is gratification that we desire and crave these sense pleasures. But rather than simply listen 
listening to the Buddha's words about this and you know, just letting it go by as, I don't know, Buddhist philosophy or theory about life, we can really follow his lead and ask ourselves the same question. For ourselves, in our own experience, what is the gratification that we find? What sense experiences are we enamored of? And when we look in this way, we see that our gratification and cravings come in a wide assortment, both of frequency and intensity. You know, on one level, on one end of the spectrum, there might be obsessive cravings that really consume our lives. And either we've experienced it in ourselves or know of people, you know, who who have these obsessive desires, could be addictive desires for food, you know, for sex, for drugs, for alcohol, for success, for praise, for wealth, for possessions, you know, for fame, for comfort. There can even be an obsessive desire for love. And so we just want to look at our own experience what is it that we're enamored of? You know, what is what is what is it that we're craving? It's interesting. Much of the world's great literature is precisely about these obsessive cravings. You know, and because they're such a powerful force, and they can be so consuming of people's lives. And in many ways, you know, our culture just encourages this. So one, this is quite a while ago, I saw one uh, advertisement uh, that probably wouldn't happen now, but years ago there was an advertisement for cigarettes and this very beautiful woman and handsome man standing and, you know, in lush surroundings. And the caption was, I don't let anything stand in the way of my pleasure. You know, and that's kind of that's the message. Or there was a storefront uh, sign. Don't let your desires pass you by. <laughs> you know, I've so much email spam. You know, increase your desire and get this or that, as if somehow all of that's a good idea. You know, that we should be working to increase our desires. So that's the message, you know, that is in our culture a lot. Or we may have the same kind of desires, you know, for these variety of things, but not necessarily on an obsessive level. But still, perhaps as the driving force behind many of our actions. And it's worth seeing how much of our life energy is devoted to getting this or that sense pleasure. So this is something we want to look at, we want to explore. What moves us, what kind of desires move us to action? We can also notice craving just as a quickly passing thought in the mind. And I found this really interesting and it's very clear on retreat. Sometimes, you know, I can be on retreat and I'm sitting and walking and the thought will come, 
oh, a cup of tea would be nice. And I just watch the thought come and go and take a few more steps. Oh, a cup of tea would be nice. <laughs> a few more steps, comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. Go for the cup of tea. Yeah, it's like a little desire with a deep root. And it's really interesting. Just it's, You know, it's like the blade of grass that comes up through cement. You know, it can be a very small thing with this amazing force behind it. And it's very illustrative just of the power of craving in the mind. It's not an insignificant uh, force. It goes very deep. But these different patterns of craving, you know, of desire, of wanting, they're so familiar to us that they just seem the ordinary part of our lives. We, we often are not paying any particular attention to them. We just take them as being part of who we are. This is, this is what it means to be me, to be alive, to be in the world that these desires are there and we act on them. The Buddha is really asking us to take another look, you know, and to begin to see what this force of craving, what it's about and its implications. So during the day, you know, while you're here on retreat and are relatively undistracted, just begin to notice what are the things that you become enamored by? Now watch to see what desires arise in the course of a day. And they may be big ones, they may be small ones. It might be the enjoyment of pleasant fantasies. You know, sitting and the mind gets caught up in a fantasy. Could be a pleasant sexual fantasy, it could be some food fantasy. We're just kind of sitting and the hour goes quickly, you know, it's like an enjoyable way to spend some time. We just get caught up in it, pay attention to that. Could be fantasies about relationships. I mean, you're, you're all old yogis, so you, you know very well how many yogi hours right in this hall have been spent in Vipassana romances, <laughs> you know, where we just create some fantasy about somebody on retreat and live out a whole relationship life, often never having spoken to the person. <laughs> you know, but our minds are just doing this. It's, it's seduced by that pleasant sense sphere. At some point of investigating and being mindful and noticing all this, we might resonate with the Buddha's words Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. That's, that's kind of a definitive statement. So can we resonate with that, or are we still holding out hope for some new and exciting sense pleasure that will finally gratify us? You know? Or do we feel, yes, I know this. You know, I've been through the whole round of these sense pleasures. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. I know, I understand this. So we want to just want to examine our own 
experience of this. But the Buddha didn't stop, you know, with that question. He asked the next probing question in his investigation. Bhikkhus, I set out seeking the dangers in the world. So first he was looking at the gratification in the world and where it comes from. And then what are the dangers in the world? And danger is one translation of the Pali word adinava. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but... And when I was reflecting on the meaning, it's sort of translated as dangers or disadvantages. I kind of, I like the word drawbacks, or maybe colloquially we could say the downside of things. You know, what's the downside of the world? What's the downside of all these sense experiences? And then he goes on to saying, whatever downside or dangers there is in the world, that I have found. That the world is impermanent, bound up with dukkha, subject to change. So through his investigation and looking at this realm of sense pleasures, of craving, he saw the gratification, he saw the disadvantages, he saw the downside. It's just what we talked about last night, understanding the full range of the meaning of dukkha. But how many of us, when times are good, you know, when we're enjoying ourselves, you know, and just all the various joys and pleasures that come in life, how many of us have the prescience and foresight and interest in times of those enjoyment to ask ourselves, as the Bodhisattva did, well, what is the downside of this? I think maybe not so often. You know, we become enamored of the pleasure, of the joy, and we're just lost in the enjoyment of it, and we forget to look further. We forget to really investigate on a deeper level. People who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures the more they indulge in sensual pleasures, the more their craving for sensual pleasures increases, and the more they are burned by the fever of sensual pleasures. Yet they find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment in dependence on the five chords of sensual pleasure. You know, I think, <laughs> I think the Buddha is really talking about us. And when we're not free, from that craving, and we're not investigating, paying attention, we're just strengthening that pattern again and again. So there are several ways of understanding the downside of this gratification, because there is a gratification, and the Buddha acknowledged that. But we want to explore, okay, well, what is the disadvantage you know, in these experiences. So there are different ways we can explore and see this for ourselves. First, and perhaps most obvious, is that in the end, they don't deliver on their promise of happiness. You know, we keep going after these sense pleasures in the belief that the more pleasant things we enjoy in life, the happier we'll be. 
and so we just keep going after them one one after the other but in the end they don't deliver why because the pleasant feelings associated with them as we've been experiencing those pleasant feelings are very impermanent so they do bring a happiness for a period of time sometimes a very short time and then they change and they're gone and so we reach for another and another and another pretty soon our life is at an end never having found a source of happiness, never having found a source of peace. So this is the first way we can see for ourselves you know, the disadvantage involved in craving. It's sort of like trying to quench our thirst by drinking salt water. It just makes us thirstier and, and we get caught in that cycle. This is not theoretical. You know, in our lives, how many sense pleasures have we already enjoyed? Just <laughs> numerous. They can't be counted. We have really experienced the gratification of the world. And then it's interesting to see how, how or when the, the fulfillment of the desire or craving, even the momentary ones, when they strengthen into a habit. Have you noticed that you do one thing and it's a little pleasurable, and then you do it again and it's a little pleasurable, and again, and before you know it, I want it, I need it, I must have it. You know, it becomes a habit that then is really conditioning and running our lives. How much of our lives do we want to spend in this endless pursuit? Now, most of us here are lay people. You know, the monastic Sangha has its own uh, environment. But for most of us as lay people, we're living in and engaged with this world of sense pleasures. It's all around us and this is just part of being alive. Still, for each one of us, some part of us knows that it's not going to provide the happiness we're looking for because that's why we're here. You wouldn't be here if there was not some deep part of you that recognized this. You know, and so I think we want to appreciate kind of the wisdom that brings us here and the wisdom that brings us to practice because it's not usual. Most people don't know this. So already, you know, we're, we're really well launched on the path. <coughs> Dharma practice opens us, and I, we all have this sense, we know this, it opens us to the possibilities of a much greater happiness and peace than sense pleasures can give. And so it's just to, to reflect on that and to honor that in ourselves, to honor that understanding because it's profound. You know, it sets a totally different direction for our lives. Again, in the Buddha's words, formerly when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself 
provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure. On a later occasion, having understood as they really are the gratification, the defects, the disadvantages, and the release in the case of sensual pleasures, I abandon craving for sensual pleasures. I remove the fever of sensual pleasures, and I dwell without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. There is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, <coughs> I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. You know, and we've all had glimpses of this. Obviously, we haven't yet accomplished the full realization of it. But we all have that sense, yeah, there is a peace, there is a happiness, which is much deeper, much more profound than this endless pursuit, you know, of seeking pleasant, sensual feelings. So that's the first drawback or disadvantage, which I think we can all recognize. The second danger, you know, within this craving for sense pleasures, is when they become a powerful force in the mind, they can lead to many unwholesome actions with unwholesome karmic effects. And so, when we're involved with that degree of craving for sense pleasures, you know, which lead us to do unwholesome things, we're just sowing the seeds of our own suffering. And so this is a real danger that we want to become aware of. And this, it's interesting to see this happening both on an individual level in our lives, but also on a national level. And I was just, you know, in reflecting on kind of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering being craving, I was thinking, um, especially, you know, in, in the last couple of years, of the whole big financial meltdown in 2008, you know, in this country and in, in many places overseas, what was it caused by? It was caused by the greed in the mind or the craving in the mind. And people, people and institutions assumed this vast, unmanageable debt that couldn't be sustained. And the whole system crashed in a certain way, affecting the lives of millions of people. Now, this was not a small thing. It was like a huge amount of suffering came about because of this craving. As I say, both individually, institutionally, societally. So we want to see how this is working. You know, see how when it's unchecked, when it's unmoderated, this craving can be the source of huge suffering in the world. We can also experience the downside of craving <coughs> right here, just in the way we practice. And I think this is really important to begin to explore. Have you noticed any times of expectation in the mind? You know, when you're sitting or walking and there's just an expecting or wanting or craving something to happen wanting some new pleasurable <coughs> meditative experience, 
or present pleasant one to stay, not to go. Now the danger of this craving, which we have all experienced, I think, is that expectation always leads to agitation in the mind. We are agitating the mind by this wanting, by this craving. And what's so particularly seductive about this particular danger is that expectation often comes disguised as dharma aspiration. You know, we have, we, we fool ourselves in that, well, this is just the aspiration for deeper concentration and wisdom and enlightenment. Aspiration and expectation are two very different things. And I would really pay attention to discerning the difference in your experience. Because aspiration inspires us. It's beautiful to have the aspiration to purify our minds, to awaken. That's very different (coughs) than the wanting our experience right now to be different than what it is. And we're not being mindful when we're, we're not aware simply the hindrances are present, they're not present. And we're just mindful in that way. If we're wanting, if there's a grasping or a craving or a desire, then we're, we're feeding that agitation and it's a cause of suffering. It really feeds into the whole cycle of hope and fear. You know, when there's expectation in the mind, there's hoping that we'll get what we want and fear that it will never happen. And so we just are, we, we are caught up in this loop. And it's a big hindrance in the practice. This expectation, this expecting mind, <coughs> this wanting, this particular kind of craving, can also feed the comparing mind, where we're comparing ourselves with other yogis. Do you ever have kind of a taste of competitive sitting? (laughs) Oh, that person in front of me, they've been sitting a long, I can sit as long. When I first was practicing in Bodh Gaya in India, the first years of my practice, we were living in this Burmese vihara, and I was in one room, and across kind of a central courtyard was a Danish friend. He was a very diligent yogi, really diligent. And I was I was really committed to the practice and you know working really hard. And I'd be going as late at night as I could, and I'd still see his light on. And then okay, he's up. I'm gonna. <laughs> so I'd, I'd do some more walking, sitting, really tired. His light would still be on. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna walk. I think he fell asleep with the light on. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't, this, maybe that motivation had some use, because <laughs> it did, <coughs> did practice a little bit more, but it really was not a very skillful, a skillful motivation in the mind. So it's just to watch how expectation can just feed into the comparing mind. The good news about this downside of things 
seeing the disadvantages or the dangers, there's actually an upside to the downside. And this was the third reflection the Bodhisattva have. If there were no downside or drawbacks in the world, beings would not become disenchanted with the world. If there were no drawbacks and no dangers in the gratification that we find, then we would not become disenchanted. But because there are drawbacks or dangers in the world, beings become disenchanted with it. Now it's very, it would be very illuminating to just watch your reactions in hearing these teachings. How does the mind respond when it hears words like drawbacks, downside, dangers, disenchantment? You know, when we hear those words, do we kind of have a reaction? Oh, that sounds a little gloomy. You know, not, not, not so appealing to us. Or do we have a sense of openness and relief in actually seeing the truth of things, seeing how things are? So we just want to pay attention, you know, when we hear all the teachings to see how we're receiving them and if we're really understanding the freeing aspect of them. I think it's very helpful to understand the word disenchantment. Because commonly used, you know, people might, that's not, that's not a very good state. But actually, disenchantment is like waking up from the spell of enchantment. It's like the happy ending to all the fairy tales. You know, wake up from being enchanted. That's what's happening in our practice. We're waking up for, from the enchantment, from the seduction of the desire, of the craving in the mind. So when we see it in that way, it's tremendously opening and inspiring and freeing. And you can get a very immediate taste of this, and in fact, one of the questions revealed it. We can become aware of the freedom of becoming disenchanted every time we awaken from being lost in a thought or a mind drama. You know, it, it's really amazing. We can be sitting in the hall and just get caught up in some intense drama in the mind, totally forgetting that it's just a thought or a series of thoughts. And we get caught up and we're caught up emotionally, and, and then at a certain point, we wake up from that enchantment. And you know, that sense of relief from the waking up, from the becoming disenchanted. And so pay attention to those moments, because it really reveals something about the freedom in the mind. So this craving for sense pleasure, 
There's also craving for becoming. Craving for continued existence. And this is the basic and very deep urge to continue being. It's the desire for continued existence, particularly in pleasant circumstances. Now we may or may not believe in rebirth and different planes of existence, although they are very much in the Buddha's teachings. But we can also watch this craving for becoming right here in our own practice and in our own lives. We can see it in the planning mind. Now, how much of the time here, when you're sitting and lost in thought, how much of it is planning for the future? It's craving for becoming something in the future. You know, I'll do this, I'll go there. And so it's this desire for continued existence in some form or another, some future situation. Notice how much and how often we get caught up or lost in the creations of a future self. You know, we, we anticipate ourselves in some future scenario and then play out, you know, the whole fantasy. I'll do this, I'll go there. This is craving for becoming. And the Buddha gave some very specific instructions for how to work with this. And it would be extremely interesting to put them into practice. He said, <clears throat> not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future, instead with insight see each arising state, not craving after past experience, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up in desire or craving. So what would that be like? You know, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. <laughs> I just find that, I find that instruction so radical in that it's so different from how we live our lives. You know, lost in the past and, <laughs> and creating our future. So what would it be like, even for short periods of time, not to do that, and just to see, instead with insight, see each arising state, right here in the moment. It's like breaking out of the dream. You know, I just, to me, it's really inspiring. We can see this craving for becoming in relationship and this, this gets very clear in the meditation, in relationship to this very unfolding process that we're all involved in. Do you notice how very often it's as if we're leaning into the next experience? We're with this breath in order to be with the next breath, or with this step in order to take the next step, or we're with these unpleasant sensations in order for them to go away. Or we're with this emotion in order to deepen it, or in order to feel it more, whatever. So I call this tendency 
the in order to mind. You know, when we're with experience, in order for something else to happen. Well, I see this is also just a kind of craving for becoming. We're craving becoming some other way. So the first type of craving is for sense pleasures. The second type of craving is craving for becoming or renewed existence. The third kind of craving is craving for non-existence. This is interesting. It's like when we just have the feeling things are so bad, I don't want to be here. Saira Upandita's first, when he first came here in 1984, he was sitting, and it was a very intense retreat. And he's a very demanding teacher. It was hard. It was really hard. And I went through some really difficult times in that retreat. And at one time, this was in 84, so there was still the Cold War going on. I heard planes going over. Oh, maybe the Russians are coming and they're going to drop some bombs and I can stop meditating. <laughs> it wasn't very compassionate for my fellow beings, but I just wanted not to be in that situation. <laughs> you know, that was really craving for, for not being. Craving for non-existence. But what's interesting about this and a very key point is that this craving for non-existence, first, that it's very different than the realization of selflessness, two very different things, and no less than the craving for sense pleasures or the craving for becoming, craving for non-existence is equally rooted in the sense of self. It's a self that doesn't want to be. And that's why it just enmeshes us further in suffering. So we see these three kinds of craving rooted in this sense of self. There's a self to gratify. There's a self to clone in the future. There's a self to get rid of. The great liberating insight and a doorway to free ourselves, to begin the path of freeing ourselves from all these kinds of craving, is expressed very beautifully in the writings of somebody who wrote under the name of Wei Wu Wei. And he was, I don't know if he was Irish or, or British, but anyway, he lived in Hong Kong uh, and in the forest, and he really, he must have had some you know, profound realization, because his writings are so uh, pithy and, and to the point. So this is one of the things he wrote. Destroy the ego, hound it, beat it, snub it, tell it where to get off. Great fun, no doubt, but where is it? Must you not find it first? Isn't there a word about catching your goose before you cook it? The great difficulty here is that there isn't one. And then he says, whoever thinks that they exist objectively is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> I love that image. 
So all of these forms of craving, which in some way have their deep roots in the sense of self, we begin to disentangle from it all in the realization that the self isn't there in the first place. We have created it in moments of identification and so you know, our path of understanding and our path of freedom comes through the seeing of the impermanent, unsatisfying, selfless nature of phenomena. And then we can stop barking up this tree that isn't there. You know, in some way, on some level, We could think of birth and death and existence and non-existence and self and other as the great defining themes of our lives. But on another level, it's just a dance of all these insubstantial appearances. You know, what the Buddha called the magic show of consciousness. That's all that's happening. And, you know, as our practice unfolds, we see this more and more clearly. And so the Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, he sat under the Bodhi tree and it said that just as the morning star appeared in the sky, his mind opened to a full understanding of these Four Noble Truths. And it said that the words that first came to his mind in this moment of awakening, what I think of kind of as his internal song of enlightenment, his song of awakening. It's the famous house builder quote, but the last two lines of it really point to what we've been talking about. <laughs> Said, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. Right? And this points us to the third noble truth. The first noble truth is the truth in understanding the truth of dukkha. The second is the cause of dukkha, where we explore the force of craving in our lives. And the third noble truth is the end of craving. And that's what we'll talk about tomorrow night. So let's just sit for a moment or two quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.